0: I have a house here. It's a little place close to the ocean. Four generations of our family have enjoyed it. But now I wonder, will it be there for the newest family member, Charlie, when he grows up? Charlie was born just last month. Will sea level rise consume the land? Will coastal erosion carve up the beach and the community? How will warming waters and air change this historic and productive place? for Charlie and for the rest of us. Hello everyone, I'm Frank Sesno and welcome to a WLIW-FM special program looking at the effects of climate change on Eastern Long Island. What's happening, what lies ahead, and what residents, businesses, and neighbors can actually do about it. This WLIW-FM special is part of Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from WNET in New York reporting on climate change and its solutions. Funding is provided by Dr. P. Roy and Diana T. Vagelos with additional funding from the Mark Haas Foundation, Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, and the Cheryl and Philip Milstein family. Eastern Long Island is already seeing change. Sea level rise is happening. It's up about four inches over the past 40 years in some places, according to research by the Long Island Environmental Group Defend H2O. Their projections suggest another 16 to 40 inches of sea level rise is possible over the next four decades. Stony Brook University's School of Marine and Atmospheric Sciences has found rising water temperatures are killing off some seagrass and marine species. Communities have seen firsthand that sustained heavy rains are causing more street flooding. To consider all of this and to explore what it means in the future, three people who know these issues Eastern Long Island and the future very well. They're committed to that future. Suffolk County Legislator, Al Krupske. Hi, Al. Hello, Frank. Thanks for joining us. You're a fourth generation farmer on the North Fork. You run Krupske's Pumpkin Farm, where you grow corn, tomatoes, and other good things. Born in Peconic, you're a committed conservationist. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. East Hampton Town Supervisor, Peter Van Scoik. His family has been on Eastern Long Island since the 1700s, a small business owner who runs a residential construction company and seasonal charter fishing business. He's served on the Town Planning Board and the Zoning Board of Appeals. Peter, thanks for uh, stopping by.
1: My pleasure to be here, Frank. Thanks for inviting me.
0: It's great to have you. And Dr. Allison Branco, she's Director of Coastal Programs for the Nature Conservancy in New York, an oceanographer who has tracked the impact of human beings on marine ecosystems based on Long Island, she has deep roots here and for six years served as the director of the Peconic Estuary Program. Allison, appreciate your time as well.
2: Thanks for having me, I'm glad to be here.
0: I look forward to the conversation and we're gonna talk about some of what we're seeing, some of what you're doing and where the future lies. So I'd really like to start with with that kind of climate change and what you're seeing now. I mentioned a few things, but. Um, Peter, why don't you start? In your town of East Hampton, what do you notice has changed?
1: So Frank, I think one of the things that's most concerning is that the rates of coastal erosion seem to be increasing and we're seeing erosion in areas that we didn't really see before. Uh, You mentioned roadway flooding. It seems like the the rainfall, uh, annual rainfall has increased very little, but Uh, yet our flooding has. The storms uh, dump much more rain in a much shorter period of time. We've seen die-offs in the scallop in the bay uh, two years in a row, complete failure of the uh, scallops to to sustain themselves, and we're seeing southern pine beetles devastate thousands of acres of forest here in East Hampton.
0: You've seen some of that on your own properties, I understand. Isn't that right? The beetles?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I I happen to live in northwest, uh, actually on land that one time was part of the family farm, was pasture, and uh, so it's extensively pitch pine forest that grew up in the open pasture over time, and uh, we've lost uh, over 600 trees on our property alone.
0: 600 trees on your property alone from the beetles. Yes,
1: that's correct, and the, and uh, that's a small number compared to the neighboring preserve land and other neighborhood properties.
0: Al Krupski, over to you from your perspective, you know, countywide and you're a farmer and you've got you know, your hands literally in the dirt. What changes have you seen?
3: So what we've seen, like, anecdotally, people have noticed a lot. Uh, and because we're a coastal community, people see this, uh, the flooding that happens at high tide, not just, the, you know, some of the moon tides, but sunny day flooding that happens. And it doesn't have to be a nor'easter to... to uh, we've got all the road ends, you know, go to the creek or go to the bay and they are they've been used historically for generations to put, to put small boats in and they're usually dry and now they're they're flooded on a regular basis would you attribute water.
0: you attribute that to changes in temperature and climate
3: yes definitely you can the sea level rise is just you can't deny it because of that that kind of flooding um, you know growing up on the north fork these are road ends that everyone used and there's also a problem with the marsh islands out in the creeks. There used to be quite a few marsh islands, and because of sea level rise, they're becoming flooded. And so then they, they suffer from uh, vegetative loss, and now you've got these mudflats.
0: And the consequence of the mud flats?
3: Well, you've lost your, your marsh grass. Your marsh is a, a, lo- a good part of the nursery and, and filtering for the creeks. And so once you lose that, then you've got this unconsolidated mass of soil that, that can move around. And, uh, you know, cause sedimentation in the rest of the creek during, you know, during a storm event.
0: Alison Branko, you have studied really your entire professional life, the effect of human beings on ecosystems. So if we zoom out and we think climate change and you look at this and you look at this incredibly interesting, diverse and sensitive eastern Long Island ecosystems, plural, that we've got. What changes are you most concerned about?
2: It's really the flooding and all of the various aspects of flooding that are having the biggest impact on Long Island. And it's not unique to Long Island. It's happening, you know, all over New York State, all over the country and the world, really. Um, and because sea level rise is a major cause of flooding, any place that's an island or a narrow peninsula is going to get squeezed by that sea level rising. So on Long Island, we're seeing, as Peter mentioned, we're seeing stormier storms, bigger and stronger storms. Um, And that goes along with longer droughts in between storms as well. Um, But it's really the sea level rise flooding on Long Island, where we have really shallow groundwater to begin with, it's pushing groundwater up. So that's, you know, it's flooding basements, it's flooding our stormwater infrastructure, which is a big part of why streets are flooding so much, because there's just nowhere for all that rainwater to go, if the infrastructure is already full of groundwater and saltwater. Of course, the erosion we see is also because sea level is rising, and so that water is trying to squeeze further inland, and so it's mobilizing a lot more sand all around the edges of the island.
0: Where are you most concerned, or is the is the ecosystem most sensitive? Because there's ocean, there's sound, there's all kinds of inlets and bays and everything else. Is it a, sort of an equal threat across the board, or are there certain places that you're watching most closely and with most concern?
2: All places, you know, are, are struggling in some way or another. The, the areas of the island that have a shallower slope, um, you know, which is sort of the, the southern facing shorelines in most cases, because of the way the island was formed by glaciers. Those are the most in danger because just a small vertical change in sea level translates to a tremendous distance inland that water is trying to go. Um and I think, too, the, the areas that are really in the most trouble are where we have developed right up very close to the shoreline. Because a lot of these ecosystems, both the sand dunes and beaches and the wetlands, can migrate inland as sea level rises if they have space to do so. But a lot of places on Long Island, we've built right up to the edge, and so they have nowhere to go. So they're getting squeezed, and then we're actually losing habitat.
0: I'd like to talk about what is happening now and what each of you are doing in your various uh, respective communities and circles to confront this. I mentioned earlier that I have a house fondly known as in the dunes, so we're very close to the ocean. My grandfather bought that place in the 1950s. It was long before people talked about climate change. And I really do wonder, you know, what whether that house is going to be around, you know, for, for my grandson, for example. Uh, but I've seen certain things that Peter, you and the others have done in Suffolk County, that if I wanted to do anything with that house, I have to burn the property. I have to raise the house. I have to think about, because you've thought about, some of these changes that are coming. Let me ask each of you what you think is the most significant thing um, First Suffolk County and Al Krupski to you has done to anticipate and and adapt to the climate change that's on the way.
3: So, this was, I was a town trustee in Southville for 20 years. And actually, my son, uh, Nicholas, is a town trustee now. And so, he's, we you know, we've talked a little bit about the erosion, and, and he and I talk about that uh, quite a bit. But uh, so, I've seen the effects of the, the sea level rise. And so, I did get a bill passed in 2019 that requires that Suffolk County DPW takes uh, sea level rise into a f- into. A DPW town.
0: is Department of Public Works, right?
3: Yes, yeah, thank you, in Suffolk County. And then we have extensive road um, responsibilities that they take in climate change and sea level rise in their projects. So what, what
0: does that mean exactly?
3: Well, if you've got a road that has um, ever historically flooded, whether it's from a heavy rainfall or whether it's from a coastal storm, that when that road is reconstructed, you have to do the, the adequate amount of drainage, and elevation uh, change to make that road passable in a you know in a storm event, so that you know emergency vehicles and whatnot.
0: So you're early. saying that you now have the Department of Public Works has to think climate change, rising sea levels, all the rest before they replace repair roads. But can you can you afford yeah. to do that? Because that means raising well, you, you roads in some places. You can't afford not to.
3: Because if you need to keep the road open, it's a pretty serious business. And when they're doing a major road reconstruction, they're doing a good job as far as you know shoulders and 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 curbing and drainage, especially anyway. So these these costs are then are incidental to elevate a road in most cases are, but it's critical that they do that at the time of uh,
0: a reconstruction. Peter, how about in East? Well, town? most
1: recently the town board. Uh, made a climate uh, emergency declaration, whereby any actions the town takes, we have to consider the impacts of climate change and to try to alleviate and mitigate uh, making that worse. So in other words, every time we consider buying a new vehicle, we consider whether or not that particular vehicle can be replaced with an electric vehicle or hybrid. Uh, we build a new building that we try to reach a net zero in terms of energy use in the construction of that building, and that we refit other buildings. So it's it's comprehensive uh, in considering how to alleviate and avoid making the climate situation worse. Um, you know, but we've also had extensive study of our town uh, through coastal assessment and resiliency planning whereby we modeled what the different scenarios of sea level rise and storm surge would be. And as Allison said, those low lying areas and gradual areas are most impacted. And I thought, I think we thought originally the ocean side would be most directly affected Uh, with the exception of Montauk. It's actually, you know, the bay side where we have our harbors and creeks. That's what's, you know, most at risk loss of our, you know, many of uh, the development around the harbor.
0: You've been pretty. You're you're personally quite outspoken on the subject of renewable energy, and you're being quite active with solar. What's the town doing on that score, and is that also a climate change related initiative?
1: Absolutely. You know, we started back in 2013 uh, by creating an energy sustainable committee when I first came on the town board, and since that time, you know, we adopted a, a comprehensive energy uh, vision. We were the first municipality in New York State to. Uh, adopt a resolution to meet 100% of the town's annual community in uh, electricity consumption and to move towards all renewable energy in all sectors by 2030. So, you know, it's something we've considered for some time. And if if we've got the first uh, solar megawatt scale solar farm on the entire South Fork we did several years ago, we've encouraged people to use rooftop solar by aggregating uh, with a competitive bid, a contractor who can provide at a lower rate solar roofs. Uh, you know, we've refitted all of our town buildings uh, with uh, major town buildings with LED lighting. All these things also save money. We have we save over $100,000 a year just with the lighting upgrades alone on municipal buildings. We're now looking at street lighting. We've upgraded the Montauk Street lighting several years ago. That's saving those district payers a lot of money, too, so it's Net loss across
0: the. Allison, from your perspective at the Nature Conservancy and looking at the big picture of this and not being, you're <laughs> well aware of the politics, but you are not an elected official yourself. What is the most significant thing that Suffolk County and East Hampton have done? And what is the most important thing they yet need to do?
2: I think East Hampton's planning efforts on climate adaptation are really. Um, sort of out in front on this issue. And I think that most other places in New York need to do more like East Hampton is doing. And I think, really? I, yes, because and I, I think East Hampton has felt enough of the problem that they've said, okay, it's time, we need to start doing this planning work. I think a lot of places are doing a good job on renewable energy. You know, it's been sort of like the, the invoke thing to do for a bit longer. And so in New York, we have a lot of, of locations doing a lot of good work on renewable energy and good state funding to sort of motivate that. But I think it's really the, the planning to adapt to the climate change is where we need a lot more work because those are much, those are much harder conversations. It's not, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to give an anecdote and say it paid for itself in five years. You know, it was a no brainer. Those things are not easy to do by any stretch, but easier, but planning for big changes that are difficult, um, That's the thing that we really need to buckle down and get going on because we're running out of time.
0: Al, at this county level, is the county moving to some of these initiatives that we hear the town of East Hampton doing? more solar, electric vehicle. We'll talk in a minute about offshore wind because that's something that's coming down potentially in a big, big way. But what are the big initiatives countywide? Uh, that you're doing like this,
3: sure. So, uh, well, it's there's no question. East Hampton's been a leader in in this sort of field in energy conservation and whatnot for a long time. The county has also, and the county has a tremendous amount of infrastructure in buildings and uh, an enormous fleet. And so, the county for years has been invested in in energy conservation projects as buildings get upgraded, and um, you know whether it's the lighting, which was done here in Riverhead a couple of years ago or the uh, all the air handlers, um, the, the heating and cooling systems, like it was done here a year ago on the roof of this building in Riverhead, the county has been uh, very aggressive in trying to conserve energy, and and also before I, even before I started as a legislator, they went as far as to put solar on um, covers on some of the parking lots that were existing already. So the the county has been kind of out in front of the of the energy conservation efforts also. And I think it's paid off, like to Peter's point, it pays off in dollars and cents, like immediately, because you start to, you look at the cost of the investment in that project, but then there's a few years of return on it, and then it's paid for, and you're, you're saving the taxpayer a lot of money, besides c- cutting down on your, um, you know, your, imp- your footprint.
0: Peter, when you and I were talking uh, earlier, you'd sa- you told me that in some ways you thought East Hampton was the canary in the coal mine on the subject of climate change. Why is that?
1: Well, I think Allison pointed to it, and, and Al has too. That you know, because we're a coastal community, we're seeing these changes in real time. Uh, and beyond that, you know, we've managed to preserve so much of our natural environment and shorelines that we see firsthand what's going on. And while much of the rest of the island may not understand uh, the impacts, such as you know the scallop die-offs and you know subaquatic vegetation that is the nursery for them and so many other species. Uh, our environment's unraveling, so we're seeing that happen in real time, and it really causes great concern to those of us here in East Hampton because we really cherish the natural environment and our beaches. You know that is the biggest draw to our whole economy. It's based on our beaches, and if we're losing our beaches, um, you know it really diminishes our quality of life here and the sustainability of our economy.
0: Hal, I know you've stood up a task force on sea level rise and coastal erosion. Um, what is the intent of that? What does it need to do given the climate change and sea level related challenges that are being presented?
3: Well, I'm trying to consolidate the different uh, regulatory agencies that have jurisdictions on the shoreline because if you're a property owner, you're faced with getting local you know, town permits, uh, New York State DEC permits and possibly um, Army Corps of Engineers permits. And so as you, you, there's a balance there between Uh, protecting your own property, and then protecting, uh, and Peter mentioned it, you know, our beaches and our public access, which is so critical. You know, you live on an island, you want access to the beach, you want access to the shoreline, you want to put a boat in or you want to enjoy the water. So it's really critical that we, we coordinate these regulatory agencies so that the property owners know the best path forward to protect their property, but also not cut off public access to the
0: shoreline. Allison. you have said, given the climate change um, risks and what's happening, that in, when thinking about flooding in New York and the eastern end of Long Island, you have to, we have to think about changing the paradigm. What do you mean by that? What paradigm needs to be changed?
2: So right now... A lot of folks are focused on solutions that allow us to keep everything exactly the way it is now. Nobody wants to do anything a little bit difficult or change their lifestyle in any way. And you know the fact of the matter is the water is coming, whether we like it or not, and it will force us to change. Um, and so what we really need to do is get everyone accepting the fact that the climate is changing, and we need to do things a little differently if we want to live here and be able to enjoy this island for the long term doing a lot to sort of defend ourselves from the water right now and the long-term results if that continues to snowball is that we live in sort of a concrete bathtub where we've built walls around we don't have beautiful beaches to go to we don't have beautiful marshes to look at we don't have fish and scallops and seagrass so we really need to sort of accept the change and start to plan to live in this world with a lot more water rather than fight against it
0: what does that mean Uh, does that mean that that I should tell Charlie, forget the house, we're we're moving it or we're not going to be there. I mean, I I go down the beach after a big storm and suddenly I see snow fences out there because people want to rebuild the beach. They desperately plant new beach grass because somehow that's going to keep mother nature at bay. I don't know what that really means. It looks nice, makes me feel good, but does that really, it's not going to stop sea level rise. It's not going to preserve the beach because the ocean's going to win out every time when it's a contest.
2: Exactly right. It's a very big ocean. There's no holding it back. Those sort of things will help for a very little while. And it makes you feel good because you're taking action and it helps for a little bit. And I think it's okay to do those short-term actions as long as you use the time it gets you to plan for those bigger picture, longer-term things that need to happen. Um, and and yes, when you have a house that's in danger from sea level rise, you have to really think to yourself, do I want to leave Charlie a house maybe with a wall around it, maybe up on stilts, or do I want to leave him this beautiful beach, which is why I want my house in East Hampton in the first place? And so then you need to think, maybe I need to find a new place to live, a new place for a house to leave him, so that I can also leave the shoreline and the beaches and the wetlands, which are the whole reason that we love it here. So, Peter, that presents you and...
0: East Hampton and every other town with a series of really difficult choices. What do you say to residents who've been there for generations? Uh, if they decide to leave their property, who compensates them for that, if anybody? And this is not unique to Long Island. This has happened in other coastal communities that have faced similar similar situations. So what are your thoughts on this?
1: Well, well it is a really difficult position and East Hampton has had you know, pretty stringent setbacks from our natural resources for some time but nature's encroaching into those setbacks, if you will, and that shoreline is moving landward. And you know, to Allison's point and to Al's point, if, if we don't move back, then we will lose what we're all here to enjoy. And so that's a really thorny and difficult conversation. How do you convince people that this is what needs to happen? We have been very active on our East Hampton Town Board acquiring coastal community properties in low-lying areas uh, throughout the town on a you know willing basis, willing seller basis through the community preservation fund, and to date we have you know we've acquired dozens of properties and actually removed structures to allow nature to reclaim some of what uh, it needs to have in order to keep a viable shoreline. Um, in areas where we have quite a bit of development, downtown Montauk, for instance, there was a real wake up call after Superstorm Sandy when all of Hotel Row was literally dangling in over the ocean the ocean was underneath these hotels and uh you know that's a situation that uh, required an emergency response because so much of our economy is based on that but the long-term goal has been to get a major sand replenishment project through the fire island to montauk point army corps uh, while it gives us a little bit more time to work on our long-range hamlet plan which is to have transfer of development rights to encourage and incentivize building of hotels in a safer location. Because if we were to lose in any given year through a catastrophic hurricane, that hotel row, um, you know, it would take years and years to recover. I know the Jersey Shore, when you know they were hit, it was three or four years before. And in some cases, many of those coastal communities still haven't really recovered. They still haven't received FEMA money they still haven't received insurance they still haven't been able to rebuild their homes and uh, the south fork is one of the two highest areas of potential tax base loss through coastal storms and uh, sea level rise in the entire country and that means that we won't have the funds to for roads for schools, and schools and all of that uh puts a much greater burden on all of us so we need
3: so in the North Fork, you know, we got hit with some bad coastal storms in the early 90s, a Halloween storm and a Christmas Eve storm. And uh, that taught a really, a really valuable lesson. And a lot of people, after they got flooded twice, they elevated their homes and they moved all their mechanicals high enough so that if there is a, another big nor'easter and the Superstorm Sandy came and, and most of the homes were undamaged because a lot of the homes on the, on the waterfront had been elevated. And so... To your question about your grandson, you know, I I don't think there's a lot of speculation about how uh, how high the the you know the water table will rise and how much sea level rise there'll be. It's it's I I don't think anybody is sure and can put a real number on it. That in fifty years we'll look back and say, oh, they were right. But um, if you want to get the enjoyment out of your home you know you have to look at your elevation and maybe make those investments to elevate your home Suffolk County piloted uh, and tested a lot of these new alternative septic systems that can function and that they can be flooded in a storm event you can flood them with fresh water to keep them full of water so that they can function after the if the you know they're they're not flooded with seawater then they can function after the storm goes away and so there's there's a lot of ways that people are trying to do stay on this beautiful part of the world and live here as long as they can and, um, and make their homes different, but still enjoyable.
0: Let me ask you, all of, all of you, uh, the following question. A lot of what we've talked about here, almost all of what we've talked about here involves cost sometimes a lot of cost. One of the things that the Biden administration in Washington is emphasizing is environmental justice, making sure that a lot of what is being discussed and addressed and where money is going in, whether it's solar panels or addressing in, you know, inequities in you know, toxic waste dumps is, is, not, is not confined to those merely who can afford it. Now, let me start with you. How are you addressing issues of environmental equity? In, in in the context of eastern long island in this very exposed place to the climate change that's happening
3: i think i think the county's efforts are largely related to infrastructure and keeping the roads open for people and and um and trying to keep facilities open for people the county provides an awful lot of services for an awful lot of people and so our infrastructure has to be maintained and it, and it has to be up to speed because we serve we serve a lot of people with a lot of different needs.
0: Peter, East Hampton is not renowned as a place necessarily. It's in the forefront of thinking about um, the the less well-off, although it is the less well-off who are squeezed out by the incredible cost of real estate in East Hampton and, and that whole part of the world.
1: Well, some of us here really are focused on that. Um, might be a surprise to many, but we have probably some of the wealthiest people in the world in high numbers that live here. And we also rank number one for in Suffolk County for poverty. So there's a real dichotomy and difference here. And, you know, I think uh, so those who can't afford to raise that family home, uh, you know, are put at a greater risk and of, of losing, you know, their family legacy and, and uh And in some cases, livelihoods because of the impacts. I mean, we we used to have uh, hundreds of baymen who would be able to survive living off an income derived from fishing, from harvesting from the sea and from the bays and harbors and creeks. And now that number, it's a handful, it's literally, you know, maybe a dozen that are full-time and active, even if it's that many. Um, so, and this is really a response, uh, you know, or an effect of, of climate change to a great degree. You know, we, we lost our, much of our yield grass and, and lots of our shellfish back in uh, mid eighties when we had the brown tide, uh, you know, harmful algal blooms are certainly one of the many uh, effects of climate change, warming waters. And uh, so, you know, we're looking at ways to improve the uh, viability of those types of jobs through uh, aquaculture, oyster, shellfish growing. Uh, we just passed a pilot project for sugar kelp. That's something that brings uh, the habitat back and allows for sea organisms to uh, hide safely and access a nursery as well as producing uh, you know, a clean organic type of fertilizer and uh, food source. So we're looking at ways to improve Uh, for working people here, those traditional lifestyles that would be uh, derived from our seeds, as well as our our farming.
0: Allison, what's your perspective on this issue?
2: I think those are all really important things. And I think another important issue is um, who has a seat at the table, so to speak. I think an important equity issue in terms of adapting to climate change, you know, there's a lot of decision making, a lot of planning that has to take place. And so I think it's really important that we consider who is involved in that planning, you know, I think East Hampton has worked really hard to make it possible and easy and, you know, get the word out and bring people into their public meetings about their planning projects and everyone needs to do that. Um, because you really need to be able to account for all of those different lifestyles in whatever community it is you're working in. Um, and it's just, it's all too easy to go to the few people who always are politically connected and just ask them what they think and, and carry on like that. And And that's a really, it's a really hard thing to bring in the folks who are too busy or who can't come to a meeting in the evening because that's when they work, not during the day. Um, So there's a lot of work to do to ensure that everyone from all all parts of the community get to participate in the planning and decision-making about how we'll move forward.
0: Peter, you have been a huge um, advocate of renewable energy. You talked about some of the solar earlier. Uh, So... Twin question here: um, What about offshore wind? How significant? How fast? How much do you embrace that? And um, what do you anticipate in terms of public support for that? Because there are a lot of folks out there who say, "Not in my back ocean, <laughs> not in my backyard. I don't want to look at that, no matter how much renewable energy it can produce." So, what do you what do you say to those issues?
1: So, I've been a supporter and proponent of offshore wind because I think after you take an honest analysis of how we can produce enough renewable energy to really meet our the demands of our modern society. You can't do it with solar alone. There's simply not enough land area. I think something like 14% could be produced by um, solar. So we need ways of generating masses amounts of, of clean energy. Offshore wind doesn't require any fuel to generate electricity. The fuel is the wind. We live in an area where offshore wind is been called the Saudi Arabia of offshore wind because there's such a regular supply of wind. Um, the South Fork Wind Farm, which has uh, been approved by the town uh, in terms of the landing of transport cable, brings clean energy to up to 70,000 homes here on the South Fork, uh, recently approved by the board, you know, promises to help us meet our 100% elect- renewable electric uh, goals. And I think that probably won't come online until 2023 or so. Uh, it's still in the review process with the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, but I, I suspect that will be completed. Uh, I think something like 70% of residents support offshore wind. Um, and, you know, we certainly have taken a very hard and close look at what the uh, potential impacts of these types of developments would be both on land and at sea. And, you know, to make sure that those concerns are adequately addressed and mitigated.
0: Al, where, where are you? Now, I, 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 if I'm not mistaken, you have a windmill not too far from where you live, right? Right across the street yeah, or something.
3: Right across from our farm on the main road in Peconic, Pindar Vineyard has a really nice, it's 125 feet tall. And when it turns, it looks it looks wonderful, I think. And, you know, I saw I was there early this morning and it was turning and it looks like the future to me. So, you know, I have to applaud East Hampton taking the leader in this. Um, so, and... and the reason we wanted to have a wind code is that people could see it and say, and, not, and kind of demystify what it looks like, what it what it sounds like, what it what it does to the, the environment. And and now you know in Peconic, there's there's a number of big windmills there, and they look uh, on farms, and they they look like the future. They're they're creating electricity out of the wind. On a, and to Peter's point, on a pretty regular, you get the sea breeze every day on a very regular basis. So it is a, it's it's it is really by definition renewable.
0: What do you anticipate is going to be the the timeline of this? When will people start seeing? Will they start seeing significant offshore wind construction uh, in and around Eastern Long Island?
3: Uh, I I don't know. I mean, I think it's all in the planning stages, and I think there's, but I think there's widespread support. I th- there's. There are concerns about, you know, from the commercial fisheries, but I think um, I think people want electricity, basically. And so, how do we get it to Long Island? Like everything else that comes to Long Island, it's more expensive than any. It seems like than anywhere else in the world. And the only way we're going to have to get away from some of that cost and also to be independent, um, and pr- is by producing our own electricity.
0: Allison, what's your view of the trajectory of this of this power source?
2: I think, as Peter said, it's, it's an essential component to meeting the goals that we have. And meeting those goals is the only way to sort of survive the future. And I think, I think in the next 10 years, we're going to really start to see the wind farms that have been in planning stages recently start to come online and be constructed. And I think, you know, I, I think people, it's right to be concerned, I think, and nobody would suggest that we should just put wind farms anywhere, anyhow, any place we want, we have to be careful, but we you know, we have to manage the impacts and minimize them to the extent possible and mitigate them where we need to. But we have to understand that it's not as if the other forms of red energy don't have impacts. So this is a lower impact way to get a renewable source of energy. And so we just have to do it smart. And I think that's what we're going to see happening in the next 10 or 20 years. So let me ask
0: each of you this. I mean, people who are listening to this conversation um, presumably are interested in it. They may think climate change is happening and an urgent issue. They may think maybe it's not, but they're curious about it. Uh, they may wanna participate. They may wanna do something. The question I often get, I often get, you know, because I do a lot of this kind of thing is, what can I do? What can one person do up against something that's such an awesome, global, overwhelming issue? Um, so let me ask each of you to, to kind of speak to your neighbors, your businesses, your constituents. Um, your followers, what would you suggest people in, in your communities and circles can do uh, if they want to be a part of this? Al, why don't you go first?
3: I, I think it's important that people engage in, in government and, and have good contact with their elected officials, and so that elected officials know what's important to the community. Because otherwise, we only know what we know, and then we have our own ideas, and then we act on those.
0: So but like, what, what can people say to you, or if they were engaging, what would you need to hear for people to feel that they're actually having an effect?
3: Oh, there's, I mean, oh, I get comments on things all the time. Some aren't county related and some are. A lot of it has to do with county infrastructure and county services, uh, whether it's, you know, the county health department or, or, you know, the county department of public works that does the roads or um, or public safety. So it's just a matter of people saying, um, you know, what's on their mind and what's concerning them the most. But to pay attention to government, uh, you know, and when I talk to classes in school, I always tell kids, we're spending your money. So you need to, and and this is your future, you need to pay attention to what government's doing because we shouldn't um, operate in, in a vacuum. We should operate with a lot of public
0: exposure and public input. Allison, what do you tell people on the eastern end of Long Island they can do?
2: Well, I think what Al said is absolutely right. I think we need to make sure every elected official from the village all the way up to the federal government is paying attention. This is the biggest issue of our generation. And if we don't pay attention to it, our children will be looking back and say, what were they doing? Why were they asleep on this?
0: Uh, they already are, by the way. <laughs> Many of them are already saying that. I hear from young people, students, all the time. We, we, know, in fact, so much of the environmental and climate movement is being driven by young people who say, "Hang on, this is the world we're going to get, and what have you done with it?"
2: It's true. And the other thing I think anybody can do, wherever they are, is just talk about the issue. You know, I think we have a long way to go to socialize this concept that climate change is real, and it's not a problem of the future. It's already happening and we need to get to work on it. And I think everyone can talk about that with their neighbors, their relatives. You know, you're at the beach and you could say the shoreline might be over here where we're sitting in 10 years. You know, I think, I think that helps everyone just sort of get used to the concept and that will help us get over the hump to start addressing the issue.
0: Peter, to a resident in Springs, to a business owner in Montauk, they say, what do I do? What do you tell them?
1: I tell them that there are many, many things that they can do that can help, and they don't really have to change their lifestyles in drastic ways. They can maintain their quality of life. They can put solar panels on their roof. They have a sunny roof. They can move to getting a electric vehicle. They can push for better rail service, public transportation. They can get a free home energy audit through the town. Uh, You know, they can change their LED lighting. Uh, switch to high efficiency appliances. They can think about not buying things that are of single use, that are just completely disposable, and and using things over again, uh, salvaging things to use. You know, uh, you don't have to just throw everything away uh, just because it gets a little shabby. Just you know, maybe paint it up a little bit. Um, little things like that. They all add up. And uh, you know, consider how you how you live your life and and. It's not a big uh, sacrifice in, in many cases. Uh, I put solar panels on my roof three years ago and I'm saving like $100 a month on my electric bill and producing more energy than I actually use. So that's going back onto the grid. You know, If everybody who can do that takes advantage of it and it's not that expensive to do between the state you know, uh, credits and federal credits uh, and what you would save on an electric bill, it actually pays for itself as Al said, making these improvements pay for themselves over time, and then you're just banking the money after that.
0: So as we close here, let me ask each of you, if someone who's listening has a question or would like to learn more about this, where would you direct them? Al Krupsky, where would you direct them at the Suffolk County level?
3: Uh, I, I'd say go to any, any town board meeting, any county legislative meeting, any village board meeting. And find out what your municipality is is doing because they are connected with. Um, there's a very good network of of uh, village officials and town officials and county officials. There's a very good network of uh, state officials of government working together, and and then of course there's resources like the Nature Conservancy that you can tap into for for information on on how we can work better as a
2: community. Allison yeah I would say the the websites of the Nature Conservancy and other environmental organizations and state and federal and local in a lot of cases, government agencies have a lot of really good local information available. And I think too um, you know in in places where local government is starting to work on this issue and do planning, they can get directly involved and learn a lot more. You know, look at the maps, draw on the maps with the state officials or with the town officials, and really get personally involved in in what the future of their place is going to look
0: like peter finally to you well uh
1: residents can contact our uh, natural resources department or my office for more information or they can go to our town website ehamptonny.gov and get the latest information about what's available and uh, the town does offer a number of programs. We have a solarized program to help you navigate that. If you want to improve water quality, you can get uh, grants for upgrading your septic to an innovative alternative. And uh, you can also get a free home energy audit uh, and understand where you're throwing money away and simple improvements you can make that uh, will save you money and save the use of fossil fuels. And just don't use fossil fuels wherever you don't need to. We've recently encouraged people to switch from gas-powered leaf blowers to electric leaf blowers, and, and all these things take some time transition-wise, but we need to keep moving forward.
0: We do need to keep moving forward, and with that, I want to thank all of you for this conversation. Eastern Long Island is an incredibly beautiful and productive and precious place. It is very much subject to the whims of nature, and it feels the weather and climate in ways that other parts of the country feel less intensely and less quickly. And so we've seen some of that And this conversation has been very helpful, shed the light on what's already happening, some of the actions that you're taking and the things that you're looking at down the line and, and perhaps some of the things that we can do individually as members of the community. So I wanna thank you Al Krupsky, Suffolk County legislator, Peter Van Skoik, East Hampton town supervisor and Alison Branco, director of coastal programs for the Nature Conservancy. Thank you all very much for your time.
1: Thank, thank you. you. Thank you Branco, appreciate the opportunity.
0: It's been a great pleasure. This WLIW-FM special program is distributed in part by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from PBS flagship station WNET in New York, reporting on the human stories of climate change and its solutions. Major funding for Peril and Promise is provided by Dr. P. Roy and Diana T. Badgelos, with additional funding from the Mark Haas Foundation, Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, and the Cheryl and Philip Milstein family. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise and on the WLIW-FM website at wlworg radio. Please check out all these resources so that you can be an active and engaged voice in your community. I'm Frank Sesno. Thank you so much for listening.